Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based psychotherapists and mothers on this body-positive parenting journey with you, here to help you help your children fully bloom. A quick reminder that this podcast is for general information and educational purposes only, and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast. This is episode number 56. And this is recorded during coronavirus. Um, So we wanted to fill you in a little bit, just kind of what our plan is. So Zoe, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing okay. I'm 36 weeks pregnant in New York City, which is sort of like horrifying, but so far so good. And uh, just hunkered down at home and we've got the homeschooling going and the virtual office going and uh, surviving, you know, like grateful that so far we're all healthy and uh, just trying to do what we can to support our own health and also the health of others in our city, which is really suffering right now. Um, but I, I'm feeling okay. And I'm, I'm really grateful that we've decided to, you know, keep this date to, to do our recording and, um, and keep this, keep, keep this project going. Cause all things that look and feel normal to me are, have been pretty comforting. Um, how about you? How are you doing? Yeah, I think it's been like a real adjustment. I moved my family down to South Carolina a couple weeks ago now. And so that's like a total adjustment for everyone. But we have more space because we also live in we live in downtown Manhattan normally in a giant, giant apartment building. Um, And it feels like a relief to kind of be able to move and step outside without touching something that, Mm. you know potentially 300 people have touched. Um, So I'm feeling so grateful for that. And also it's, you know, it's been quite an adjustment of parenting. I think our kind of season theme of body positive parenting in real life, it just has a whole other like (laughs) highlight right now because um, we're eating all of our meals together and which we don't usually do because both of my kids go to school and we're just moving together and we're I'm doing a lot of parenting a lot more than I was. And I think probably all of our listeners are. So that's been quite a juggle, I would say. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that Zoe and I have had to juggle is we have kind of different schedules now. Um, So we are going to be juggling um, the next couple episodes where you heard this in Becky Kennedy's um, where we're going to be kind of solo um, for a couple episodes so that we can kind of accommodate our live and work situation since we're both uh, full-time moms and full-time therapists. 
Yeah. And, and we, we really wanted to keep this going. Like I said before, I know for me, the, the podcast that I like to listen to and the sort of usual things, it's, it, it, I feel that they do keep us going. And this is certainly not a time that any of our patients and our practices are appreciating us yanking support. Um, and similarly, I think we could all use as most, the, you know, the most support we possibly can get. And we think dividing and conquering the interviews will be the best way to keep our content streaming and keep our project going. So yeah, I hope we'll be able to alternate like one with you and then one with me and and we'll hopefully be able to come together to sort of debrief and share with each other what we learned and then look forward to the time in our lives, hopefully sooner than later, where we can literally come back together and properly co-host. But that is the plan uh, moving forward. Although today we, uh, or I should say tonight, it's pretty late, Friday night. <laughs> Friday we, night. We, we, yeah, this is like our Friday night now, <laughs> Leslie. It's a rager. Um, <laughs> we, um, we were committed to, to coming together and talking to a really wonderful guest who's actually in Australia. So we are, are thrilled to share this, this one with you. And, uh, you know, just building on the theme of the season, body positive parenting in real life, we had a great listener question that we got to dig into a bit. And maybe, Leslie, you could kind of read the question and, and then we could we could get to the conversation with our guest, Dr. Laura Hart. Yeah, absolutely. Let's read the question. So here it is. Our listener wrote in, um, which you can do too, and write in a question that you have um, that's coming up in your life. So this is what our our patron wrote to us. Um, I have a one-year-old daughter. My parents both talk about food a lot and like ongoing commentary about what they or others are eating. I have tried to talk to them about it in the past, but it hasn't worked to change their behavior. Knowing that they're basically stuck in their ways, how can I talk to my daughter as she grows up so that her grandparents' attitude towards food and bodies doesn't negatively impact her? It's such a good question. It's it's one that we actually have gotten multiple times. And we are really excited to be joined by Dr. Laura Hart, who's a senior research fellow at La Trobe University at the University of Melbourne. And she's been working for over a decade, including as a lead author and investigator on an amazing program that helps parents prevent eating and body image problems in their preschoolers. So this felt like a natural fit for this question. And uh, we're thrilled to welcome you, Laura, to the Full Bloom podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here talking with you both. We just can't wait to share all your knowledge with our listeners, but can you just start with telling us a little bit about your background and the work that you do? Thank you. So I did my PhD in the area of eating disorders prevention, and on my panel was a professor called Susan Paxton, who is really famous in in the eating disorders field for her work in prevention. So I really was mentored by the best. And also another professor called Tony Jorm, who has done a lot of work in mental health literacy. So understanding what the community knows about mental illnesses and how to prevent them. So I developed 
guidelines on how to provide first aid for someone who was developing or experiencing an eating disorder. So information for community members about how to recognise the signs that an eating disorder might be developing and how to seek early and appropriate treatment. And some of those guidelines included information for parents of adolescents or younger children who might be developing signs of an eating disorder. So once I finished my PhD, I took up a job, they call them um, postdoctoral fellowships, once you've finished your your PhD, I started a postdoc uh, working on a program to prevent disordered eating and body dissatisfaction via working with parents of preschoolers. So my work has really been very informed by understanding what community members know and how we can take actions at a population level and really trying to upskill parents in the way they can talk about food and body image with their children. And in amongst all of this, I've also got two kids of my own. So I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old boy. And not only do I study this stuff, but I have to live and breathe it too. (laughs) So when they refuse to eat their broccoli and their carrots, you know, I'm in there, you know, in the trenches doing the same thing that all the other parents are. And when they ask, you know, well, how can I make my muscles bigger? You know, I have to I have to navigate those conversations too. So I, w- I like to say that my work is informed not only by the research, but also the fact that I have to live uh, life with two rambunctious kids as well and make sure that they're blooming as well as they can. <laughs> well, you're in good company. I think when we came across Confident Body, Confident Child, which we'd love for you to tell our listeners more about, I know personally I felt like a kindred spirit ship with you across the, the continents. And, you know, Leslie and I, we created the Full Bloom Project before we were aware of your initiative, but the the like-mindedness of it is so very similar ethos. And I love, we both love that there's research behind your program. So could you give us a little backstory on Confident Body, Confident Child program? Sure. So Confident Body, Confident Child is a parenting program and a set of resources for parents of two to six-year-olds. And it's been designed to help parents teach their children about healthy eating patterns without negatively impacting on body image. So we're really trying to prevent the onset of disordered eating and body dissatisfaction. And it was born out of research that Susan Paxton was doing that found that body image concerns can start as young as three and four years old and weight stigmatizing beliefs can be apparent in children even that young. So we can see negative beliefs about larger bodies and positive beliefs about thinner ones even in early childhood. So what we did knowing that parents are a really important key in developing body attitudes and eating patterns, we wanted to develop a range of resources that was really practical and met parents needs so that they could use strategies to help develop body confidence. And we did a whole range of preparatory studies. So we spent about three years developing the program and uh, there were four different steps. So the first step was to do a systematic literature review where we looked at all the journal papers that had come out before us to understand what are the risk factors that parents might undertake. So what kind of things might they say? What kind of strategies might they use in the home that could increase a child's risk for disordered eating or body dissatisfaction? And on the flip side of that, 
what are the behaviors and the ways of communicating about our bodies and eating and weight and health that gives a child resilience and protects them against developing these problems? So we did this literature review to understand risk and protective factors, but we also looked at what interventions had come before us. So what programs already existed for parents that had been evaluated already and, and found to be working? And what we found was that most interventions for parents that had been developed to date were based in the, sort of the high school years and they had created resources for parents almost as an add-on, as an adjunct to curriculum that they were teaching directly to adolescents. So these programs often weren't designed with parents' needs and they didn't really meet what parents wanted out of resources. They were kind of an, an add-on, a, a second thought. There are, however, some programs that are very effective for parents of adolescents. Uh, what we did find, though, is that there was nothing going under elementary school age. So there was nothing for early childhood. So we knew in developing confident body, confident child that we were absolutely filling a gap. Sorry, that's number one. Here we go. Number two <laughs> was we did interviews and focus groups with parents and educators of early childhood. So we spoke to daycare centre directors and we spoke to paediatric nurses and we asked them, as well as parents, lots of mothers and fathers, and we asked them, what do you understand about the term healthy eating? What does it mean to you? How do you try and encourage your children to eat healthy? And then what does child body image mean to you? And how do you try and encourage your child to feel positively about their body and their appearance? And what we found from that study was that parents often understood what healthy eating meant in terms of a broad, balanced diet and reducing processed foods and sugary fat salt intake. What they didn't get were the strategies for managing that when their children are spitting out their corn and refusing to eat anything other than white foods. So they know where they need to get to, but they don't have the map for managing children's behavior in order to get there. And that was where we decided that Confident Body, Confident Child really needed to go to give very practical strategies for managing some of the hiccups and bumps along the way. And then the, the final thing that we did was what we called, uh, this is number three, a Delphi study, where we did a literature search of everything on the web. We plugged in search terms like, how do I prevent my child from developing body dissatisfaction or how do I prevent disordered eating or how do I help my child develop healthy eating? And we looked at everything that the internet threw up designed for parents about how they can manage this in their home. And we took all that information and put it into a survey and put it out to parenting and eating disorder experts. And the idea was to develop consensus on which strategies that are out there for parents are the safest and the most effective and feasible for parents to be doing in their home. And that developed for us the real nuts and bolts of the curriculum for Confident Body, Confident Child. And we knew then that the strategies we were suggesting parents use were going to be the safest, the most reliable and the most effective. Because you can't, in research, we often hear people talk about randomised control trials as being the gold standard, but you can't do a randomised control trial on a whole range of things in the way we parent. And so having consensus-based uh, Delphi guidelines is the next best thing. Mm -hmm. The final thing we did was to develop resources and pilot them with parents. So get lots and lots of feedback about 
how do we make this more engaging? What kind of format do you want it in? Um, how do we make it meet your needs with a four-year-old versus a two-year-old? And so what we ended up creating was a suite of resources. So we've got the parent book, which is the cornerstone of our program where all our information is contained. And we talk about how what healthful eating is and how we can help our, our children develop it. We talk about healthy weight, what that is, and how we can work towards maintaining healthy weight, whatever that means. And we talk about body image and body attitudes and how we can encourage children to have positive and accepting body attitudes and how we role model all of that as parents. We also have an extended family book, which is a really short summary of all the key messages that's designed to give to other important caregivers. We have a website. Uh, we have a children's book that uh, we provide to parents to read about body acceptance and appearance diversity with their preschoolers. And we also provide parent workshops, either online via Zoom or face-to-face. -face. And we've been training uh, facilitators in the Confident Body, Confident Child workshops for some time now, and they're available across North America, New Zealand, Australia, and hopefully soon in the UK. It's, it's amazing what you've what you've pulled together and we'll definitely make sure that we can link in the show notes to any resources that are available. Um, but I'm curious, kind of in all this work that you've been doing, was there anything that surprised you? Um, anything that felt controversial or not really supported by your research, even if they were kind of commonly recommended? One of the really interesting things out of the Delphi study is that we couldn't develop consensus on what to do about weighing yourself in front of children. Mm. So experts were really split. Some of them said, yes, as a parent, you should weigh yourself and role model acceptance and just kind of a I don't care attitude. Like you just you hop on the scales and you hop off and it just doesn't matter. It's just one of those things you do maybe to in our household, we weigh often when we're trying to work out how much medicine mm. uh, we're trying to give a child because they're often based on milligrams per kilograms. They're the, the metrics that we use in Australia. But also we weigh luggage before we go traveling. So we need to have scales in that house. But then there were a whole other group of experts who said, no, throw them out. Role model, absolutely not caring about weight and no, no measurement at all. And the experts were really split. We couldn't come to an agreement on which strategy was better. And one of the limitations of Delphi is that if there isn't consensus, it's really difficult to represent the idea in the guidelines that come out of it. Mm -hmm. So we were able to develop consensus on a whole range of issues, including things like if a child is living in a larger body, they should not be put on a diet. And that's something that runs contrary to, I think, our community's understanding. But whether or not to weigh your child, I think there are arguments in both directions. And I don't think that we've, even if we redid this study today, because this study was done uh, in 2013, uh, I, don't, I don't think we'd necessarily see, have seen that uh, consensus shift. I think we'd probably still see experts in both camps. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that kind of mirrors in the eating disorder world, you know, that many of the manualized based treatments with kind of that have done randomized controlled trials do do kind of non-blind weighing with the idea that exposure to weight um, kind of extinguishes the angst around it, um, or that's the work that we're working on. But then there's a whole other side, you know, there isn't consensus really in the eating disorder community about that. So it's just interesting that also that it just there, there wasn't consensus that you were able to get. 
You know, it's it's interesting too. Just um, anecdotally, a mom friend of mine was telling me she's sort of a, a friend of the pod, likes to listen and learn. And she was telling me that in her son's kindergarten, they were weighing the kids like as part of the identity unit, like that, like as part of just like who we are. Like they did a paint study to sort of look at everybody's different colored skin and. And similarly, like one of the things they were they were looking at was like how many how many pounds each child weighed. So it, it was interesting because my initial response was, "Oh, <laughs> why is that happening with five year olds?" But in a way, and this was sort of the the mom's point because we were having sort of a an interesting conversation about it. She was saying she sort of appreciated the teacher's um, very neutral approach to it. And how everyone was getting on the scale, everyone was getting measured, everyone was sort of looking at each other's skin. And, and it was really, it was, it, in a way, it was sort of an exercise in non-judgmental observation about identity. And was even saying that for this age group, being a higher number was sort of cool, you know, um, which, of course, that stigma changes quick. But it, it's interesting to sort of see a practical application of that controversy and how, you know, there's probably pros and cons and and probably will land very differently depending on uh, who the who the person is, who the child is. Yeah, it's such a big controversy in our field at the moment and the broader world. And it, it's something that needs a lot of work. I think that weighing in a public domain and using body weight as some kind of mathematical or identity exercise is high risk because if a child comes to that measurement with judgments that are negative, Mm -hmm. then you're setting them up for public shaming and a real exposure to body dissatisfaction uh, and potentially body hate. And I think that it's great in early childhood that we can try and expose them to measurement without judgment. But I would be concerned about what attitudes are the children bringing to it already and do they come with preconceived notions about what weight means? If they're truly neutral, that's great, but often they're not. I mean, in our lab we can see we use figure arrays where we have eight figures, one who's very large down to one who's very thin, and we ask children, which of these children would you invite to your birthday party? Who would you not? Who's the nicest? Who's the most mean? And what we find is that children choose larger figures for the negative questions and thinner figures for the positive questions, and that that discrepancy strengthens from age three through to age five. So although children in early primary school typically have really positive body image, if you hear a three or a four or a five-year-old talk about their bodies, they tend to be really positive about them, which is great. But they're also already internalizing social stigmas about what weight means from a very early age. So I think we need to be really careful about public discussions of weight, especially in relation to identity, because what I would like to see is, in fact, our appearance and our body measurements having nothing to do with identity. Mm -hmm. Who you are is what you do and what you say and how you care for other people. It's not what you look like. I'm with you there. 
um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, just this, it's an interesting conversation. You know, that's one of the things that Zoe and I are trying to do by interviewing all these researchers is to try to help parents like kind of know, okay, what, what, what's helpful and what's not helpful, even if it is coming out as like, maybe it's helpful. Um, so it's great to hear some of the work that you've been doing. And we wanted to really to get into our listener question this week. Um, and we know that you're not going to like be able to answer the whole question, but we just really wanted to kind of think about this question with you and get your thoughts on based on your experience and research on this question. So Zoe, you want to read the question? Sure. Uh, so a listener of ours wrote to us and said, I have a one-year-old daughter and my parents both talk a lot about food like an ongoing commentary about when they or others are eating. I've tried to talk to them about this in the past, but they haven't changed their behavior. Knowing they're basically stuck in their ways, how can I talk to my daughter as she grows up so that her grandparents' attitudes towards food and bodies doesn't impact her? It's such a great question and such a common challenge for parents. When we did our our focus group studies and our interviews and we were asking parents about healthy eating and, and body image in children, one of the consistent concerns from parents was that they were saying, look, I think I'm on message. In our home, we're really positive and we try to talk about food in a really broad way. We talk about it fueling our bodies and tasting nice and using it for celebration, but also stopping when we're full and trying to only eat when we're hungry. And so they felt like they were doing the right things and setting up resilience in their home. But when other important caregivers got involved, uh, like grandparents, especially when they were from migrant families and the grandparents came from a very different culture, they really found that their children were being exposed to very different ideas that the parents thought were not particularly helpful. So we get this concern from parents quite a lot. That said, it's not necessarily an easy thing to change, but we do have a couple of strategies that we can suggest. The first thing is to say that we find it useful when talking to grandparents to say, uh, we know you did a great job of raising kids. Clearly, we turned out okay. But the environment within which our children are growing up is so very, very different to the environment within which grandparents grew up or we as parents, our current generation, grew up. And the generation that our children is growing into is going to be a very image and appearance-obsessed culture, and we need to protect them and do all that we can to teach children about loving and accepting their bodies. And to do this, we need to be careful about the way we talk about food, about health, about weight, about appearance. And in my experience, grandparents don't want to do anything that harms their children, but often they have difficulty seeing that what they're doing could cause harm. They know, however, and they're a little bit afraid about technology and our image-based culture. And I think sometimes being a bit of a squeaky wheel about it too, like, Nana, you know, please don't say that. Or Nana, we've spoken about this, I think has, is helpful, but doing it in a gentle and, and respectful way. Uh, we created the extended family book so that you could kind of just push a little booklet under their nose and say, hey, 
I came across this resource and this is what all the science is saying we need to do now to protect our children from these problems. Would you mind giving it a read? And we can have a chat about it. You know, we'll have a talk about it. And I think speaking to them away from the children via, you know, a phone call or a conversation where the children aren't around, explaining why it's important, even though their attitudes may be very different and you can appreciate why, that this is important for protecting the child. The other thing I'd say too, the other strategy is that when the child grows up, uh, maybe not at, at 12 months, but maybe, you know, at three or four years, you can have a conversation with them around, oh, do you notice what Nan and Pop say about food? And do you think it's any different to what we say in our house? And try and get a sense of, are they aware that the conversation is different? Chances are they're very aware. And then second, ask them how this feels or what it makes them think when they hear this. And then you can talk about why it's so important that we talk about food and bodies in the way that we do in our house because it's really important for our brains and our bodies to feel good about the food we eat. And if we feel bad about the food that we eat or if we're constantly thinking that it's bad for us, that doesn't actually help our body turn it into nice, healthy fuel. And it sets up a, a relationship with food in our bodies that's not very healthy. So we're careful in our house about the way we talk about food and bodies. And I think you can keep it quite simple, but you can try and plant the seed that the way other houses do things is not necessarily the way we do things. And there's an important reason why we do it the way we do it in our house. That's so helpful. I think also that little booklet is really helpful. What, what kind of feedback did you get from your participants about them using that booklet? I'm curious. They did. So you can find it on the confidentbody.net website on our website. Mm -hmm. uh, all the information in the resource is freely available on the website. And we did find, we even had some grandparents come along to our parenting workshop sessions. And we've also delivered it to childcare workers and pediatric nurses who have found the messages really helpful. And they've said, it's not just grandparents. Sometimes it's a partner who has a very different beliefs or attitudes about food and can be a bit resistant to change. So the extended family book was just a way of exposing people to these ideas. And I think it just takes time. It takes chipping away at, I mean, I know that you two are very experienced in talking about weight and diet culture and how it's a constant fight mm -hmm. to ignore it and, and keep it out of your face and work against it. And I think that this is a little mission that parents need to take on too, that we sort of, we draw a ring around our children of diet culture and we kind of say, you know what, my kids, I'm going to fight to keep them out of diet culture. And part of that is standing up to my parents or my in-laws and saying, please don't say that in front of my children. And it's part of that resistance to the culture that we don't want our children to internalize. Yeah. You know, I'm having two thoughts. One is I'm thinking about an episode that Leslie and I recorded, I guess, over the summer where we we talked about this as it pertains to speaking more specifically to pediatricians, like my child's doctor. Like, how do I basically do this but with doctors? And one, one of the things that we had a lot of compassion for is how hard it can be to be assertive and to, and to stand up and, you know, advocate. Like, I love the strategy that you're describing and it actually, it's succinct, it's non-confrontational, it, it's gentle, you know, but 
I think we appreciate how hard it can be to, like, for a lot of people, it's just being interpersonally effective is hard. And so I wanted to just reference and we'll put in the show notes, like the episode that we did on a specific DBT skill, the dear man interpersonal effectiveness skill that I think is relevant here. And so for listeners, you know, go to the show notes and click on that episode to kind of get a little extra guidance for how to effectively communicate just some sort of skill building. And the other thing that I wanted to note, and and it sort of harkens back to what, what you started off by saying your program is completely dedicated to parents of very young children of two to age two to six and how wonderful an idea it is to be able to speak very respectfully and frankly to your three-year-old or four-year-old about things like difference, right? Like that we do talk differently in this home. You might hear, you know, Nana and grandpa talking differently because there's something, if you can just model that and keep being repetitive about that, in a way, what you're doing is you're you're being really realistic about the world we live in, because this isn't, and I, I can hear in the listener question, that she wants to be able to, to change her parents, and they're also stuck in their ways. And like, that's, like you said, the cultural differences and the generational differences sometimes are insurmountable, and it shouldn't stop us from trying. But I think ultimately helping our kids know how to navigate the differences and know how to navigate the inevitable stigma and the inevitable kind of divide between people that are on, as one of our former guests said, like one side of history versus the other side of history with this matter, you know? And so I I love this idea of speaking, just kind of speaking directly to your child about about this from a really early age. I don't think a lot of parents would assume that you could have a conversation like that with your three or four-year-old, but I know that if you just keep having that conversation, it will just become part of the way they they think critically about difference and the way, you know, you can't you can't always have everybody on the same page. Absolutely. And my uh, seven-year-old has a, a range of food allergies and the way he has to eat is quite different to other people. And the way people feed him at different houses is quite different and he gets difference and we've been speaking about his ability to eat things and why that's different from since he could talk so and I think even the four-year-old gets that the rules at Nana's house are different to the rules at home they are just different and I think it's okay to talk about that they get that uh, the rules are different at childcare and at kinder versus a grandparents or a friend's house or your house things change a little bit depending on who's in charge. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that and talk about it in developmentally appropriate ways. The other thing I'd say too is that there's lots of resilience building you can do in the home as a parent. And the reason why we focused on parents is because they're such gatekeepers in the early childhood years. So in eating disorders prevention, we talk about the big three being parents, peers, and media as the influences on the development of risk or protective factors for disordered eating or body dissatisfaction. So parents can create risk or protection, media can create risk or protection, and peers can create risk or protection. And in the early childhood years, parents are such gatekeepers to the other sources of influence. 
before kids go to school, you have so much more say over what they're watching, who they're playing with and what kind of games they're playing. And once children go to school, that that gatekeeping role starts to erode a little bit. And by the time they're in adolescence, you know, you're really hoping that they're carrying with them the messages, but there's not huge amounts of control that you have. And so if you can instill positive, resilient, protective messages about the body and about food and why we eat and how we eat really early on, then when they get exposed to those other sources of influence, they're going to have the right key ideas in their head to be able to fight them off. I appreciate that there are people in our lives who want to change and we should put some effort into trying to shift them, but there will be people who we can't change. And our other way of helping our children navigate the world is not just to change everyone in their path, but to develop resilience to the messages that we want to help them reject. It's one of those things that whenever I, whenever I think about, you know, the the parenting process of up into preschool, kind of up to um, having them go to kindergarten, it's just, there's just so much, right? There's just so much opportunity there, but also it's like this precious time. And I can, I can feel sometimes that it's, it's really stressful, you know, to, to be in that time. And it's wonderful that your, some of your programs are kind of in nursery schools. I can just imagine, I wish that it was kind of in every nursery school, you know, because it's just a, it's an opportunity for parents to really first get a little bit of a a break from parenting sometimes. Um, And then they can kind of retain a little bit more information too, just with, with a little bit of the break. So I'm so glad that you, you chose to target this age. I feel like so much of our work is talking with people who are working with teenagers or adults, you know, and doing studies. And it's just, it's, it's so nice to talk to someone who's really focused on a younger age. Yeah. And I think, I just want to note that um, I don't want it to feel overwhelming because the parenting strategies themselves are actually really simple. It's things like read a book about appearance diversity mm-hmm. with your children. It's, talk about the amazing things your body can do. Like you get a cut and it heals. Isn't that incredible? We eat food and it turns it into energy and bones and hair and eyes. Like, isn't that amazing? And it's enjoying being physically active with your child, whether that's walking or riding or doing, you know, whatever activities indoors that you do, playing hide and seek. It's being fun. It's talking to children about the way food is wonderful to sit down and eat with a family and just having, you know, having fun being around your family without focusing on food or health all the time. They're they're pretty, although the mission might seem overwhelming and big, I think the way you implement it on a day-to-day level is really simple. Yeah. I'm thinking just as we record this, of course, we're all at home <laughs> with with our kids. Um, <laughs> and, you know, on, on one hand, it's like, you know, who's got time for body positive parenting? Like we, we, we got we got bigger fish to fry. But in in reality, it's simple, like you're saying, you know, just to continue to be mindful of opportunities like that to appeal to your child's awareness of the way their body functions and sort of how miraculous it is and 
truly, given how deprived so many of us are for our typical, you know, just creature comforts, it's it's nice to think that there may be moments for some of us anyway, to put a little bit more attention on this. I love what you're saying about just being mindful of a, of a boo-boo healing and how it may not seem like it, but that's very body positive. And that's a way that if, if you have the right intention, like you said, the mission is, is grand, but the strategies are and can be very, very doable. So we, we appreciate that your resources, which of course we want everyone to check out, can support that, that sort of integration into normal life. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you could just kind of help us answer our our question that we always ask and maybe kind of answer it in a couple parts. Like what, you know, if each parent listening to this podcast took away some fun and simple things that you, that they would learn in your program, what would they be? And then what's kind of the one thing, if there is one thing um, that you would particularly recommend they do? Well, let me, let me start with the the million dollar question first. Okay. (laughs) I think um, if there's one thing that I'd love to see parents do It's no matter what they look like and no matter how they feel about their body, it's to try and find something to talk about positively about their body in front of their child. Whether it's like, oh, I banged my toe and that really hurt. Isn't the body amazing that it tells me that I've hurt myself so I can protect my toe or that it heals or that it turns food into energy or that I can hear beautiful music or smell gorgeous flowers or cuddle you, or squeeze your finger. There's so many ways we can appreciate the functions of the body once we try and move away from our focus on appearance. And I think one of the the really key messages for parents, and particularly mothers, is that we're not asking you to be saints and all of a sudden be 100% body positive and love yourself inside and out without ever having any kind of criticism, because that's not realistic. And I think what we're trying to say is it doesn't matter how you feel inside. It's just being mindful that if you communicate that to your child, you're setting them up for risk. And what we can do is just try and find those little moments of appreciation of our bodies and communicate about those. Even if you struggle internally with how you feel or even if there's parts of your body you wish you could change, that's okay. That's common but it doesn't mean that we have to encourage our children to feel that way. And just finding those, those little moments of how amazing our body is, is such a, a powerful way to help build resilience in our children. Amazing. Thank you so much. Any other little um, recommendations from your program that you'd want to sprinkle in at the end? Yeah, I guess for these these lockdown days, we love uh, recommending Cosmic Kids Yoga. It's a free children's yoga program on youtube there's also a subscription version that has more videos but check out cosmic kids yoga on youtube and they do yoga poses that move through a children's story and it's just it's my four-year-old's favorite thing to watch (laughs) at the moment um so screen time doesn't need to mean sitting still and being inactive and you can do it too it's great fun to do it together Uh, we love youtube disco parties so Try and build in being physically active with your kids, even if it's incorporating 
screen time. So there's lots of resources in today's crazy world to get active while watching screens. And I would uh, suggest as much as possible trying to join in with your kids and make it fun. I will say a little shout out to Cosmic Kids with with Jamie. <laughs> My kids love it too. And and I'll say just for any parent listening that sometimes what I notice is when we put it on, my kids will sort of start doing the, the poses and then they'll kind of sit down on the couch and watch. And I notice that my impulse is to say, well, we're only going to keep this on if you're going to actually move. Like that's the whole point of this, you know? <laughs> and one of my kids, the, my five and a half year old was like, I need basically was saying to me, like, I need to watch it first. Like he didn't necessarily feel comfortable just sort of following the teacher along. And of course, she's she's very charming. And the stories, you know, check it out. It's great. I think we were watching the Wizard of Oz one or the Trolls one or something. And I thought to myself, oh, that's that's important for us to remember that just with exposure to any new thing, like if our kids need to watch it a few times and not necessarily move, and I'm definitely saying this to reassure myself, um, <laughs> that uh, give them a chance because they they will start moving eventually. And um, like Go Noodle is another one that they they've been doing right, and sometimes I see them run it running with Fabio the moose, and then sometimes they're just sitting there watching, and I'm like, what is going on here? But I think that we have to just be patient. And I love your suggestion of moving with them because, of course, we know from research that that's such a protective, body-positive activity that we can do with our kids. So thank you so much. This was such a pleasure to speak with you, especially in the midst of such a strange time in our lives. Thank you for uh, making yourself available. My absolute pleasure. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. So Zoe, that was, I just love that conversation. I feel like it's so relevant right now to me, parenting, and I loved the suggestion of just really trying to find something that you're grateful for, which I felt a lot of gratitude during this coronavirus um, experience, just every little moment of health that I have and movement that I can do um, feels just amazing and I think it makes it maybe a little bit easier to find that positive thing and make sure that we're vocal about it with our kids I I just think that's that is something that's possible it's possible for all of us we can kind of move away from the from the seeing the image of ourselves in the mirror and think way more broadly what did you think yeah no definitely and I I, like I said to Laura at the beginning of our interview, there's such a, a kindred spirit, I think, between in full bloom and, and confident body, confident child. And it's so nice to know that there's such research backing up the content that they produce because it, it does intersect so nicely with ours. And just that reminder that now's as, as good a time as any to put these strategies into place and, and, and to not even think of them as strategies so much as just like little moments, you know, really doable moments. And I'm also thinking a lot about gratitude and uh, just gratitude that we can, those of us that can, you know, move our bodies, even if it's just for 15 minutes of outdoor time a day, depending on where we are, certainly in New York City, that's kind of what we've got. And 
just to keep that as part of the protective factor. I mean, there's a lot of scary images and, you know, news headlines right now that it's, you know, kind of impossible to shield anybody from, um, except for maybe the youngest of children, but to sort of counteract it with, with that gratitude and appreciation for what we do have. And just that reminder that that is connected to body positive parenting and that, we're doing it even just with this, like the squeeze of a finger or noticing how this virus, for example, like does and will infect a lot of people. And a lot of those people are also going to heal from it. And isn't that amazing? Look at the body, you know, and of course, there's a darker side to it. But just for the purposes of this conversation, it just feels hopeful. And I love just the practical suggestions, like, cosmic kids and disco parties and and just ways to genuinely make the most of this very very strange and trying time absolutely yeah i i want to just encourage anyone who's think who's finding the questions arising in their mind when they're listening to really please consider sending us one becoming a patron it really is like a five dollar a month donation to help us keep doing this but it gives us content for us to f- go find a, an excellent researcher to answer your question. It's like a mini consultation. So if you have one, let us know. We really do want to answer it. And you can just uh, go to our website, fullbloomproject.com Patreon, and then you can send us a question and we'll work to answer it on the future podcast. That's right. So I guess that's our show. And uh, in general, any reactions, questions, you know, always email us, info at fullbloomproject.com. And if you like what you're hearing, we really would appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the podcast. And thank you all for listening. Please tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Mm-hmm.